Welcome, everybody. This is Jeffrey Geisner, founder of the Obligations of Memory podcast for the Jewish Culture and Holocaust Remembrance Group on Facebook and Twitter and uh, YouTube. Sorry. We are together uh, today has Steve Russick, a friend of mine from the way, days of Allentown, Pennsylvania, where we both grew up. And so, uh, Steve, welcome to the podcast. And maybe you can give us a little bit about um, your parents' background of pre-war through the camps. And then we'll take the podcast to some interesting other places. Well, Jeff, Jeff thank you. Jeff, uh, thank you for that introduction. So uh, I, I'll begin my just I'll begin my story by talking about my my mother Dora, and uh, so Dora was uh, a blessed memory. Was born in Grodno, Poland, in 1923. Um, she lived uh, in a home with her parents, uh, her brother. Her youngest brother, uh, next uh, a younger sister, and then an older sister, um, and her parents, uh, Motel and Shana, and her uh, sisters were uh, her sisters were Rachel and uh, Fagala and Avram, and uh, they lived on the banks of the uh, they lived on the banks of the Niemen River, which ran through uh, the middle of uh, Grodno. And uh, she had a wonderful childhood. You know, it was really steeped in uh, in family and Jewish life, and uh, and uh, the rhythm of Jewish life uh, in Poland. And I think it's important to sort of have a perspective about Grodno. It was a town of uh, maybe fifty thousand people, thirty-five thousand people, uh, but it was just nominally uh, at the time of her birth was nominally majority Jewish, which was not all that uncommon in uh, in Poland, and. Uh, and uh, she, uh, she tells great stories about her family. Her, uh, her grandfather lived not far from her home. Her, her maternal grandfather, Hirsch, lived not far from her home. And uh, he too lived on the banks of the uh, Yemen River. And he was in the, uh, in the wood trade making shingles. And, uh, and my mother had a great relationship with, uh, with that side of the family, as well as her father's, but uh, they, uh, uh, her mother's side of the family used to uh, float, uh, make kayaks out of wood, and they used to do lots of things all along the river, and she just had a wonderful time there. And her, uh, her father's side of the family, my, uh, my grandfather Muttel, was a, a road construction foreman, as was his father, and some of the relatives on the, uh, on the Yablonic side of the family, my mother's side. And... Uh, they had, she had a wonderful time and she really enjoyed as she got older, going to school, going to Tarbet, uh, the Hebrew language uh, school where, she's, where they learned in Hebrew and Yiddish. And, uh, and it, things went pretty well. Uh, you know, it was a pretty good, comfortable existence. And uh, Poland was, you know, was reborn after the, after the First World War. And it, uh, it, was, a model, it, was, it was intended to be a model a multi-ethnic uh, country. And that went on pretty well until uh, the, the early 1930s when uh, General Pozutski, who was sort of the visionary for, for modern Poland, uh, died. And uh, the economic situation started getting really bad. And, uh, and uh, with it came an onset of uh, anti-Semitism. Her father was having a greater difficulty uh, getting work. And by the time she was an adolescent um, in 1935, um, there was a pogrom, a terrible pogrom in, in, in Grodno. And um, 
Uh, one individual died, many people were injured. Her grandfather, as I mentioned, who uh, lived on the banks of the uh, Yemen, her grandfather Hirsch, my great grandfather, he was badly beaten and, uh, and his children, uh, his male children all, they hid in the river and the like. And uh, my uh, grandfather, uh, Motel, uh, was in town doing business uh, at the city hall, getting permits. And uh, luckily he was befriended by, uh, he had a good friend who worked there, a pole, was a very uh, good friend of his. And he uh, took my grandfather and stuck him in the basement of the city hall over there uh, during the pogrom. And uh, my mother and the rest of the family were holed up with uh, all the Jewish men of the community and uh, essentially protected themselves with you know, rocks and, and uh, shovels and rakes and whatever things they could. And, uh, managed to keep uh, the uh, the rioters at bay, so it was a pretty uh, pretty uh, pretty s severe trauma, and, and came came with this uh, was uh, uh, there were beginnings of economic boycotts against Jews, and my grandfather was having a hard time making a living, and as a result, my mother could no longer go to school; they couldn't afford to send her, and it really uh, that left a very indelible mark on my mom. And uh, she really committed that, uh, that uh, you know, when she has children, she was going to do anything she could to make sure they got a great education. And I think the testament to that is that, uh, you know, I went on to get a PhD, my sister went on to get a PhD, and my brother was an attorney. <laughs> so, you know, she, she, that was a really important thing to my mother and my father that their children were educated. And I think she saw that as a major accomplishment uh, for herself. And I think it was well-deserved. You know, they sacrificed a lot to make sure that kids got educated. So, um, you know, coming towards the end of the 1930s in 1939, when uh, in September of 39, when the war starts, um, the, Soviets, uh, the Soviets occupy Poland uh, with the, uh, the advent of the uh, the Ribbentrop Agreement, and uh, so the Soviets have come in, and the situation got bad, but not horrible you know, compared as, a, as you know when my mother tells this story, she always compares it to what happened later. But you know there was a, the economic times were difficult; it was hard to scrounge food. My um, my uh, my great grandfather Hirsch once again had good connections with the peasants in the community, and had a good reputation with them, and he was able to get uh, food for the family. Uh, they had a little bit more means and um, that, you know, it, it, it wasn't ideal, but it was okay for them. I think uh, other folks who, uh, other Jews in, in Grudno who might have owned businesses were taken off to Soviet, you know, off to the Gulag and into central, uh, into central Poland. My mother remembers Jews that were fleeing from the, the German occupied zone and, you know, the, the Jews of, um, uh, the Jews of, uh, of Grudno made an effort to help them, and then the Russians sort of took them off east uh, to the east, and uh, so it was a it was a pretty challenging situation. And uh, in uh, what is it in uh, in June of uh, in uh, in June of forty one, uh, the Germans attacked, and you know they attacked their Soviet allies, so to speak, and they occupied uh, Grudno, and the situation was just absolutely horrible. Um, I managed on YouTube to find a video of um, the Germans entering Grudno, crossing the uh, crossing the Yemen River and a bridge, 
And it was uh, quite remarkable because the bridge was only 50 yards from my mother's house. And my mother remembers uh, uh, crossing that bridge by foot just uh, hours later and, and how, how horrendous that experience was. And so, you know, she, uh, as the Germans occupied Grudno, um, you know, the, the, the acts of uh, terror and humiliation and seizing of their property and, you know, individual uh, beatings and mass murder uh, began to take place uh, with greater number. Eventually, this uh, eventually this all turned into uh, uh, they were later uh, later interned in the in the two ghettos, ghetto number one and ghetto number two. And my mother ended up uh, in ghetto number one with her family. And luckily, there was a family that had an apartment there that uh, that my parents knew, and they welcomed in then. So you know, it was a couple of room apartment, a couple of families living there. But you know, they made do. That's what they did, and. Um, they lived in the ghetto and my mother uh, was uh, sort of in a way fortunate enough to be picked for slave labor in a rag factory just outside the ghetto. And um, she, uh, uh, she and a number of other Grudno women worked there. And uh, the person who uh, ran the place was a Volksdeutsch, uh, you know, a, a, a German, uh, a, a, someone who was a cultural German, it wasn't from Germany. And, um, and he, uh, he uh, was pretty kind to them. She always remarked about that. And, uh, and she was able to get food that came in with the rags uh, smuggled in and she smuggled it into the ghetto at great risk to ourselves. And, um, uh, and then by the time uh, the ghetto was started to be liquidated in November of uh, 42, uh, towards the end of that November, they were taken, my parents' uh, family, my, uh, my mother's family, uh, and uh, her grandparents uh, as well were taken to the uh, the Kelbasin transit camp, and uh, uh, from this transit camp, uh, Jews were taken by train to either um, to either Auschwitz uh, Birkenau or to Treblinka, and uh, uh, the uh, this is right around the time of Hanukkah in 1942 in December, and uh, my uh, my. My grandfather Muttel made arrangements with his uh, brother, um, Velvel, and he sent his uh, Velvel sent his son uh, Shaiki uh, to uh, come and take my mother and escape from the camp. And uh, so my mother, uh, my mother reluctantly, you know, just uh, she's she says goodbye to her parents and she uh, wants to take her younger brother. Avram with him and my grandfather will Mutl would not allow her because she said if you take you take Avram you'll never survive there's no chance and and so uh, they had a very uh, a very difficult parting as you can imagine and the last words uh, my grandfather told to my mother was uh, um, uh, my brother Chaim who lives in America he will be your new father and uh, um, as I uh, uh, as I tell when I recount this story for others, uh, this uh, Chaim Yablonik was actually uh, uh, when he came to America, uh, he was Herman Yablikov, who was the composer of uh, of uh, Papa Rosen, hmm. and so he was this uh, um, 
very well-known figure of the of the Yiddish theater uh, in the Yiddish world internationally, whether in the U.S. and Canada and Argentina, and uh, you know the Jewish diaspora uh, pre-state Israel. So, and then uh, so then my mother escapes with Shaiki, and they uh, uh, unfortunately uh, the next morning after all the transports have left, they get captured, and they're captured by uh, Rinsler, who was the commandant of. Uh, of uh, of Kelbasin, and he keeps them. Uh, he keeps. Uh, he separates the men and the women, and he keeps all the women in a bunker in a in a uh, in a cabin. And uh, for the for the next five days, he uh, uh, he periodically goes in and has them come out of the bunker and counts off uh, every fifth woman, and he puts a bullet through their head. And uh, so she endured all that. I don't know how. And eventually she survives that and she gets taken back to the Grudno ghetto. And while she's in uh, the Grudno ghetto, uh, she uh, ends up uh, in the home of her boyfriend, uh, Lava Sokol. And uh, so uh, my, uh, my mother's, one of my mother's uncles that didn't get taken to, uh, to, uh, to Kelbasin, uh, he arranges uh, for my mother uh, and Lovell to get married. And so they get married in uh, in the uh, in the Grudno ghetto in uh, December of 42. And uh, they live there and just waiting to see what's going to happen. Little food, very horrible situation. And comes the uh, the end of January uh, 1943, uh, the deportations from uh, Grudno to Auschwitz begin again. It was called the auction of the 10,000. And my mother is taken to uh, to uh, to uh, Birkenau, and um, she makes her way into the camp, and uh, she gets there around the end of January, and she uh, uh, she finds herself uh, as as a slave laborer in in Birkenau. She was fortunate enough that she wasn't taken to the crematoria like her mother and and uh, and sister and brother. Uh, my grandfather Muttel uh, had. Uh, had gone to, uh, uh, had uh, managed to stay in the camp and she knew that he was alive when, uh, when she got there, but he dies sometime thereafter. How old was so she? My, sorry? How old was your mom? So my mother, this is 1943, so she's about, uh, uh, about 20 years old. Okay. Yeah. And your father is how old? And my father at this point is uh, two, years, uh, two years older, he's uh, mm -hmm. 22. And so they, uh, my mother uh, uh, works in a number of various commandos, uh, like in a, in a weaving commando, uh, some, some also some senseless commandos in the beginning where people are asked to move rocks and from one place to another, just essentially mindless torture. And uh, uh, so she, uh, so she's, uh, Continuing to work in uh, in the Weberei, in the weaving area, and then uh, she gets uh, she gets selected to um, uh, to work in Canada. At this point, so Canada was uh, a commando in uh, or a section, if you will, of of, of uh, Canal, where people worked to sort the clothes of the people that were being murdered. And my mother was selected for this commando along with another, a number of other women from Grudno. And uh, she goes there and uh, on one of the, uh, 
uh, come March of 1943, she's uh, really uh, getting very, very ill. She's beginning to suffer from dysentery and the like, and she's running a fever and she's on the verge of not, just not, uh, not having the will to live anymore. And uh, she gets stopped uh, as they're coming back into the camp from work one day, she's stopped by a bunch of uh, SS officers, her and her group, and they uh, start asking them, what are you doing here? And, you know, uh, and uh, one of them comes up to her because she looks a little red and flushed. So he's wondering and she says, my leg hurts. And instead of saying that she's ready to die and be take to block 25, where you're taken next, uh, uh, you go to block 25. It's, a, it's the, the next stop on the way to the gas chambers in the crematoria. Instead, they, they, uh, they send her to the infirmary. And this is insane. Most people don't know this, but there was actually an infirmary in, in Birkenau where they sent sick people. Most of the people went there that went there that died. My mother was there for six weeks and then walked out. Hmm. Just completely phenomenal. You know, she, when she walked back into her, uh, into her bunk, uh, the women walked away from her. They wouldn't go near her because they thought she was a ghost. Uh, you know, because you know, who, com who comes back from the infirmary? Anyhow, so, you know, she so she recovers and uh, and uh, there's a, a very religious woman uh, whose uh, name escapes me. My mother told me uh, who uh, shared extra portions with my mother of her meager portions and so that my mother would uh, have a better chance of survival. And uh, so she regains her strength. She's uh, selected, uh, she returns to work at, uh, at Canada. And then, uh, you know, fast forwarding to like December of, uh, uh, towards uh, December of uh, 43, um, uh, she's, she and other women uh, of, of, uh, that were working in Canada are taken to the new location of Canada, which is, you know, from the iconic picture that everyone knows from the aerial pictures of uh, Birkenau, you know, you have the, the two sections on either side where crematoria two and three and uh, sorry, one and two and three and four uh, are, are present. And in between that is where Canada was. And she, uh, she spends the, in, she spends the period from 1943 into 45 uh, working in Canada. And there are quite a number of stories that go with that, but not enough time to share them here. And uh, she eventually, uh, Comes uh, come the uh, January in 1945 uh, with the uh, the Soviets uh, uh, soon approaching and the uh, Germans scared to death of the Soviets because they don't take prisoners. They're just either to, the prisoners they take they're selling they're sending them to Siberia and otherwise they're just killing them. And so my uh, my mother with uh, once again with a number of the same women that she, from Grudno that she entered the camp with. They became her camp sisters, her uh, Lagerschwestern. And uh, they are taken on a, on a death march. Uh, uh, they're taken to Ravensbrück. First, they march through the, through the snow. It's brutally cold. I don't know. Like, I think it was like minus 20C or something like this. It was really freezing, cold winter. And she's taken by open coal carrier uh, towards uh, the direction of Ravensbrück. And then they're taken out of the coal carrier and marched to Ravensbrück where she begins to be a slave laborer there. And then she goes, she spends some time in Malkov um, through I think like March or early May. Uh, 
early April. And then eventually with the Soviets getting closer, she, uh, she's taken on a death march and she, uh, she and the women are just going, you know, they're, they're just marching endlessly to the south, uh, south from Robinsbrook. And eventually one morning, it's uh, maybe late April, early May, I forget the exact date. And um, she wakes, they wake up in a field and the, Ger the Germans are all gone. And uh, she's liberated. And they all, uh, all the women try to figure out what to do. And they ask some people for some directions and the like. And uh, they find out where the river is. And they are told the Americans are there. And they end up going to the banks of the river uh, near Hasdorf. And they cross a tributary of the Elbe. And how did they cross? Um, uh, American soldiers swim across the river. Hmm. So let me let me yeah, take them on their backs to uh, to, to freedom. Pretty amazing. So yeah. let me. Uh, we have a few minutes left, but I yeah. do want to give you an opportunity to tell one or two of those stories. And then we're going to, um, this will be the first part of our um, podcast episode. We're going to do another podcast uh, with you, right, uh, as a continuation of your story. So tell us one or two of those stories. So I, I think one of the, one of the, uh, there are two really, uh, I think, uh, very interesting stories. One is, one is about, one is about hope, and the other one is about, um, about determination. So the one about hope is uh, when my mother first entered the camp, this is going back to the time period around February of, uh, of 1943. My mother is sharing a bunk with another woman named Dora. Uh, her name is, uh, uh, I think her name when she was born was Dora Globowitz. And she later uh, went by the name uh, Dora Freilich. And uh, there's a, I, I had the opportunity to, uh, I was preparing to uh, tell, my, tell my mother's story. And I went to a, uh, a talk uh, given, uh, uh, that was given, uh, that was sponsored by the Holocaust Education Resource Center of Milwaukee. And uh, the talk that day was being given by Elaine Coberson. And Elaine is a, a well-known teacher of Holocaust uh, education in the US. And Elaine tells a story about uh, her mother's story of survival. And as she's going through this story of survival, my wife is, my wife Myra sitting next to me and whispering in my ear, Steve, this story sounds like your mother's story. This story sounds like your mother's story. And we're just sitting there in amazement. And then, uh, um, and then so after that uh, talk, I go up to talk to Elaine. And uh, we have a, a short amount of time here, but making a long story short, it turns out that Elaine Culbertson, uh, is Dora Freilich's daughter. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow. And, uh, and so uh, when, when my mother Dora, my mother Dora and the other Dora Freilich, they shared a bunk together in Birkenau. And uh, 
Dora Freilich gave testimony in uh, like, I think it was like 1981 or 82 at Greats College. And in that story, in her testimony, she talks, uh, uh, she talks about breaking bread with my mother, how they would share, yeah, how they would share, excuse me, how they would share bread uh, in the morning and uh, at night, you know, they would share their little portion. And uh, they would, uh, my mother would share with her that, uh, that we should be hopeful, you know, that uh, when we survive, uh, my uncle in America will help us. Hmm. And, uh, and, excuse me, that story was, uh, I think, left such a strong impact on, uh, on uh, Dora Freilach. Her, 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 her daughter Elaine said her mother, her mother used to sing uh, <clears throat> Papa Rosen all the time. How does so, that song go? Sorry? You know how that song goes? Oh, I, I, uh, I, I can't. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a song about a, uh, uh, an orphan child, an orphan boy selling cigarettes in, uh, in World War I Poland. It, is, uh, uh, it was popularized by my uncle, uh, Herman Yablokov, who, was, who had a stage persona called the Der Piatz, the clown. He was sort of like a David Bowie character of the 1930s. So, so you know a, a, a ton about your, your family's yes. story. So was your mother very, um, had the ability to share with you? Yes. How, yeah. how do you gather all of this information? No, I'm going to give you the opposite side of this. My parents, my yeah. mother, who was in Auschwitz with her family. Yeah. And my father, who escaped Nazi Germany at 15, did none of that sharing. I know right. nothing from my mother or my father about their survival. Uh, and they only wanted to look forward to the future. So tell me, yeah. how, how could your mother, um, and I know from my doing what I'm doing, is that there were a lot of survivors talked, and there are many that didn't talk. Yes. There were some hybrid in, in the middle. But Absolutely. it totally sounds like your mother needed to speak to you about, yeah. and then let's talk about your father. Did your father also have the experience of talking? Uh, not so much, but I also have to say that um, my father is an, it was a very intense introvert. So I would say that uh, the only person I ever met in my life that was more introverted than my father was his brother, Yako. <laughs> <laughs> So my dad, so you, you was have a, your mom, you have your mom's extrovert, right? That is correct. I have my mom's <laughs> extroversion. And so I, I, I can't entirely remember when it started, but I think my mother had a knack of telling stories that were age appropriate. And so she drew me into the, uh, I think she drew me into the stories appropriately, leaving, you know, the horror and the trauma and the violence, uh, which, I learned about later when I was better able to handle it. And you I know, think the first time you heard something about the Holocaust. Oh boy. I would. 
eight years old, seven years oh, old. Really? Yeah. Interesting. You know, I, I think, you know, did, did it leave a mark on me? Yeah. I, I you know, uh, some, some kids play, uh, some kids when they're home alone or they're uh, hanging out in their room, uh, you know, they play cards or are solitaire. Sometimes I would set up a little fort hiding underground, hiding from Nazis, you know? So what yeah. am I supposed to say? You know, it's, so it, it, we're gonna, it had, we're going to talk more about that. Yeah. But we're coming close to the end of our uh, first yeah. episode of um, talking with you, Steve. Yes. So I'm going to leave it here and then mm -hmm. we're going to come back to our second episode. And um, in just a minute, you're listening to Steve Russick tell his family story, which is really incredibly emotional. And I think all of us have felt your story as you've explained it. Thank you. Um, and so we're going to come back to episode two of Steve's story and for the uh, Obligation of Memory podcast shortly. Thanks.